It was, I would uh, say, nothing short of a traumatic experience when we moved to Texas and I entered the public school system. Kids seemed quite brutal to each other and treated each other in ways I, I just never fathomed people would treat each other. Um, the girls were quite cruel to me and teased me a bit it, it, because I, I don't think I fit in. And any with any anyone, male, female, mm-hmm. period. For uh, three years, I had no friends. I ate lunch alone every day. Every day. Every day. How do you how do you manage that? I wouldn't sit at a table. That was too dangerous. I was highly bullied and teased. So I would find a corner, and eat quickly and eat alone, and then try to disappear and not stick out. What what kind of bullying were you subjected to? I was spit at in my face one time. I'll never forget that. Directly in my eye. What kind of names were they calling you? Bitch, fucker. I, I, I can't remember them all. Quite frankly, it was. Um, I have recurrent nightmares about that time. Not as much as I used to. Um. I just remember wanting to be invisible, as invisible as I possibly could, because the more invisible I was, the less torture I would go through. Welcome to Self-Disclosure. I'm Dr. Owen Muir, and this is the show where we talk to people openly and often for the first time about their own experiences with mental health. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Nate Sharon. He's a child psychiatrist, and he practices in New Mexico. Our interview, however, took place in San Antonio, the town in which he grew up. I was sitting in home ec class, and there was uh, kind of a more developed uh female peer who was doing more risk-taking behaviors sexually active and smoking and was all pierced out and uh i think she said something like are you are you gay or i can't remember what she said but i was like what is that and when she said that i'm like well i didn't say it out loud but i thought to myself well that's exactly what i am i think girls are amazing (laughs) uh i was raised in a very conservative christian home uh, and I, sexuality wasn't really talked about in general. I suppose it was assumed that I would be attracted to boys and grow up and, and marry a boy. And in fact, my parents revealed to me that when I was born, they had already had this discussion that if, if any of their kids grew up and were going to be gay identified, that they would kick them out of the house. I did turn to the church because I thought inherently it was something at least in my upbringing and my culture, I think I attribute it more to somehow not being right with God or attributed it to my sexuality, which of course I would be depressed about. Um, So literally in high school, I had this group of youth group leaders try to excise the gay demon out of me. Hands being laid on praying over to cast out whatever bad is out of me, sometimes speaking in tongues. It was a very wild experience. And Are you from a Pentecostal tradition? I would say non-denominational. Evangelical. Yeah. yeah. So they laid on the hands. They, they spoke in the tongues sometimes. 
Right. And hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> you're, you're a straight guy. It worked. <laughs> I met you as Nate, um, but that's not the name you had uh, when your parents named you. I picked my name when I was uh, 29, Nathaniel Grant Sharon. Okay. And I picked Nathaniel. It means gift from God or gift of God. And um, because when I was born, they assigned me a sex and a gender of female and the name Jennifer. Um, and that was a gender that did not resonate with me. Um, and I spent a, many, many years on a gender path figuring out my gender. Um, and part of that involved figuring out my sexuality along the way, too. And um, I think the opportunity to be able to live authentically and live in my affirmed gender felt like a life-saving gift from God. Um, so I picked that name just to kind of uh, denote the power of my journey and um, the power of the life-saving gift of being able to just live an authentic life true, true to oneself. I didn't date all of college. Did you have any sexual relationships of any kind? Did you try to connect with anybody, like, at all? <laughs> Just once. So between the summer of my freshman and sophomore year of college, I went home. I had been told that there was this older woman in the church in San Antonio that my parents went to who uh, was an ex-gay and that she was going to connect with me and help me not be gay anymore. Um, so I met her when I was 18 and she, I believe, was in her early 30s and it was, I made it my mission that summer to seduce her. <laughs> um, so it, quite the reverse happened. <laughs> Um, but that actually ended up really hurting her. I think for her, her religious values were more important than her sexuality. Um, and uh, after we had a relationship that summer, she ended up going to one of those um, kind of uh, ex-gay camps that y you live at. I think really struggled. And we never talked, ever. Her her parents refused to connect me with her. I couldn't talk with her. And I found out some years later that she died of ovarian cancer when she was 42 or 3, quite young. I still regret to this day not being able to say goodbye to her. After graduation from college, I just decided I wasn't going to take it. Not a second more. Um... When I graduated college, I got my first job as a research assistant in um, a human subject laboratory studying antisocial personality disorder. Um, and I, after graduation, I continued to live in Houston and work in Houston. And um, uh, I was very involved in the church throughout college, so I moved in with some church roommates. The one condition of living with them was that I didn't live, quote-unquote, the gay lifestyle. So I said, sure, fine, I can do that, clearly knowing that I wasn't going to be able to do that. Graduation was in 
May, Gay Pride was in June. I went to the Gay Pride Festival. It was my first time ever going to anything like that. I came home. The next day, I got a call from the uh, the singles pastor, and they said, your roommate's called me. They let me know that they knew you went to the gay pride parade. That was a violation of what they had asked of you. And you need to pack your bags and move out immediately. So I'd, I think I'd had my job for a week. I had no money, um, no place to go. And all my friendships that I had developed in my college years were associated with the church and they all rejected me. And I called my parents, and as much as they loved me, at that time, they were not accepting of my sexuality and said, you've made your choice. Good luck with that. So I lived out of my car for a couple of weeks. What kind of car was it? Shoot. I think it was a Saturn. (laughs) (laughs) Not Uh, known for being the largest of cars. (laughs) it, It was my graduation gift, and thank God I had it to live in because I had only been at my job for a week. I had not accrued vacation time and I had no money. I saved up to even uh, put a deposit on an apartment or a place. I had had nothing to my name really. Um, And that is a time that I contemplated suicide. I lost everyone. And I don't think I've ever known such isolation. I now know as a child psychiatrist that most LGBTQ youth that are homeless are in that same transitional age I was, 18 to 25, um, and that there's very little places for them to go. Um, and so now I'm quite an advocate for homeless LGBTQ youth. It's, um, it's a really rough place to be. I called the Houston LGBTQ hotline, which they had, and I asked them, what do I do, basically? And their advice was to go to the bars. <laughs> So I did. Um, and I drank copiously. I was so nervous and so afraid and not really quite knowing what to do. And I ended up telling one of the bartenders my story. There was some two, two, a, a couple there in, in their young 20s. And they heard about the story and they said, well, you can come stay with us for a little while. Didn't know me at all. And they let me live on their couch for several weeks until I could accumulate the $300 to put a deposit on a studio mm. and move in. And I, I still don't know their names. I can't, I can't remember their names and I don't know who they are or where they are out there, but I think they were instrumental in keeping me alive. So benevolent strangers, that kid you take in, you may save their life. My mom ended up going to a support group in San Antonio of Christian parents with gay kids. And she called me one day, and I think it was about a year later or so. And we still had like a limited, limited conversation, but or limited engagement. And she said, I, I went to this group and I heard stories about parents rejecting their kids, parents saying, You can't come home for the holidays, parents saying horrible things about their children. And she walked out and she said, that's not the relationship I want with my kid. I love my kid. I want them. These parents would share stories about their kids in their forties and fifties, still no relationship. And they had chosen this kind of moral principle over a relationship with their kid. And she said, I want to choose a relationship with my kid. 
from age, let's see, 21 to uh, 28, I was living as lesbian identified and things actually were great. I'd made a bunch of friends in the Houston lesbian community, was leading a book group, had a really healthy relationship with my parents who were super accepting over the years of my sexuality. And about age 24, I uh, realized that something um, wasn't quite right. I think somehow being in relationships with other women, I realized that I'm not lesbian. Between the ages of um, like roughly 23 to 24, I started to have this, what I would call an alter ego, a male alter ego. I would just inform my friends, well, today I'm going to be Percy. And that's who I am. Kind of stopped hanging out with the lesbian community at age 26, 27, and hung out more with um, the gay community, the gay male community, just because I think it was almost, um, I, I think my gender identity was, how I put it, coming online. And I could be feminine in some expressions, but still feel male identified and hang out with um, gay guys who acted uh, more female typical, but were still male identified. And, and that really resonated with me. Sometimes I just say I'm, I was raised by a pack of gay men uh, because I think that is really where my gender identity, like I felt safest and was developing my gen- my internal sense of my gender. I think I was... T- 26. And I don't remember how I found his website, but I found the website of a of a trans guy online documenting his transition. And I it only took me 5 minutes. I think it was or 10 minutes. And I said, "That's it. That is exactly it." And I still, to this day, all this talk professionally about gender identity development, and still to this day, I can't put into words why or how. I just knew that was it. It was my, I had, I was a guy. understood that it would be very hard on my family and I cared about what they thought and I thought well if I get into med school you know that'll be the carrot and maybe they'll still love me and accept me and think I'm awesome because I've got this on my plate you know at least this is this is my my daughter's son who's a doctor it's nice right so very thoughtful Nate (laughs) the day I got into medical school the day I got my acceptance letter Mixed day, I got into Texas Tech, which is located in Lubbock, Texas, one of the most conservative cities in the United States. I got in, and that night I called my parents. Wow. Got something to tell you. I'm transgender. I'm a guy. And they paused for a second. I think my mom said something like, oh, we knew. Which stunned me. I thought I was doing a great job at keeping my gender identity a secret. Um... And sort of living gender neutral, as you will, kind of living without any kind of gender. And my mom's like, I think we knew. I think we knew that. And 
she cried and it was definitely a grieving process for her and my parents stood by my side when when in uh in the course of your medical training did uh did you begin your transition it was between um the second and first year, or sorry the first and second tier of uh medical school because that was the only summer that we had off i tried to do a preceptorship um but i wasn't passing i was working at the mental health mental retardation office and um kids were calling me out on my gender neutrality and couldn't figure out what i was in terms of my gender and would say very interesting things to me that uh would ruin my chances of passing and make me feel quite self-conscious and then a couple of psych residents said something to me like uh i wouldn't have my i didn't wear my badge because it still had my legal name on it and one resident asked me where my badge was. I said, I lost it. And he looked at me, he said, yeah, right. And I just, it just felt hostile and scary. So I dropped out of the preceptorship um, and just stayed inside. And literally for the years of my physical transition, about two years, I, I didn't leave the house. I would leave the house to go to medical school and back and that's it. Occasionally, I would venture out at night, and I would do what we called the drive-through test. I'd go through a drive-through, order some food, and if they uh, mammed me, it meant I wasn't passing yet. And if they served me, then maybe things were looking up, and maybe it'd be safer. But I do recall one day driving home from an anatomy practical uh, for a break before coming back for the um, written exam, and a group of college students pulled up next to me. And my window was rolled down, and then they were talking to me. And at first, I couldn't make out what they said. And they, I realized they were asking me. They were talking to each other first, like, "What is it? What do you think it is?" And then the guy in the car who was driving, who was pulled up right next to me, said, "What are you? Are you a man? A woman? What? An it?" And that was the first time I'd ever been called it. it wasn't the last time I was called it. Um, I was going to maybe get kicked out of medical school and then all my work, my years of work, three jobs, night school, uh, wouldn't pay off. Um, but actually Joanne, Joanne Larson, who was, um, directing, I think like the program director for the medical school, I can't remember her official title, pulled me into her office and she said, um, you know, we're going to take care of you. We're going to help you out with this transition and help you through this process, and she shared a story about um, converting to LDS when she married her husband and being rejected by her family for that and understanding what it meant like to be rejected for something that's important to you. Um, and I give this, I share her story quite frequently in my talks about unanticipated allies. I think a lot of people um, stereotype religions as automatically um, community or religious communities is people who are going to reject and stigmatize. And that is not always the case. And actually some of the LDS faculty there were some of my most strongest supporters during a, a few hard times. When people can connect over experiences that have been hard, that they have felt marginalized, that they have felt discriminated against, that they felt rejected around, put the human, it just, 
it brings, like you said, forget the education. It's the human connection that breaks down those walls and those barriers. And, and it's, it's shocking and true that physicians are, are among the human race. At that time, I was really debating whether or not to be out about being transgender on my residency application. But I decided to be out, one, because I wanted to be authentic about myself, and I didn't want to go to a residency where suddenly my gender status was revealed and I would get kicked out or harassed. Um, and I'm glad, actually, I was out because I was interviewing at one residency who said um, several people during the, the, the residency interview said, you know, you, should, you shouldn't probably be out about that here to any of us nor to the patients and should probably keep that to yourself. Because with that comes a lot of stigma, including your capability as a physician, um, including your ability – I think you just get questioned fundamentally as a human and and seen often as somehow disabled or uh, functionally not capable. Um, and I've had people come up to me and say, you seem so normal. I thought transgender people were crazy, just crazy. And I'm like, well, uh, no. <laughs> I think I am normal and I had this distress. I, I, can it be a both and maybe? I think gender identity is a mental illness. I think, you know, the dysphoria that you described, this feeling of uncomfortability in a gender, that's something we identify in our diagnostic manual as something so we can help kids and adults get services when they need them. But again, not a mental illness per se in the way we generally think of mental illnesses as something wrong. And again, I think as a model for how I like to think of mental illness, I think gender dysphoria is a good one, right? It's a thing that's true that we should probably do something about because we can help. I think you can say the same things about most mental illnesses. To this day, remain ambivalent about it being in the DSM. In some ways, I felt a sense of relief having it be in there. Like, oh, there's a, you know, there is a thing for this. This is like... This distrust I feel is real. However, I also didn't want to be perceived as crazy or delusional. Um, and I remember I transitioned under the standards of care six, which required, I think, a minimum of three months of psychotherapy before uh, being able to allow to start hormones. And I lied about having major depression. I didn't want anyone to think I was crazy. So when you applied for psychiatric residency, did you write about it in your essay? I did. Um, what the hell was that like? I think I was trying to describe the things that I cared about and why I cared about them and why I was going to be a competent, passionate physician. Um, and I think my experience of transitioning and being transgendered um, had put me through some life experiences where I think one of the greatest one of the, one of the what's the word I'm looking for the art of healing is often in the listening and hearing the narrative I think all that I'd gone through left me vulnerable 
and a way where I could heal or hear here to heal. Uh, come November 2011, I hit the worst depressive episode of my life. Uh, maybe, maybe the first one was bad, but it was, it was really horrible. Part of it was um, the rainy, <laughs> the rainy season of San Francisco and the lights going out. I think that was part of it. But um, I was in the middle of my internal medicine rotation, and I'd had one day off that month, um, and I was working 36-hour days frequently and I just broke down. I would I would just crawl into my car at night at nine o'clock, getting off from work and cry. Sit in the car and cry for hours before going home. And for the first time in my life I started encountering people like me. People with my gender history, my gender uh differences in gender and working at the San Francisco County Hospital seeing transgender patients with late stage AIDS and dementia, poverty, doing sex work to survive, substance abuse. And I think it was breaking my heart too. I think it was really, I saw myself in them and And some of that really seeped in. Where it could have been. Yeah. Where it could have been. Once I got off internal medicine, rotated over to consult liaison psychiatry, I did. You are not expected to be human. You are not. You work. You care for other people. You don't care for yourself. You were a psychiatry resident. Right. You weren't internal medicine, you weren't surgery, you weren't obstetrics and gynecology. Theoretically, the people you were working with had the skill set to notice what you were going through. Yeah, I was con- gonna, it was going to impact eventually. I think the one thing that motivated me the most was actually how it impacted, not me, but how it was starting to impact patient care. Patients would be talking to me, and I could hear them talking, but I was like, hmm, I can't make sense of their words. It was so hard to concentrate and everything was like moving through molasses and I'd get up at 5 a.m. to start my day and get up crying and go to bed crying and I'm I'm like, this just can't be sustainable if I'm going to continue to work like this. So I went to one of my tendings and I'm like, do you know anybody who can help me? I, I, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I was scared that my, or my depression would be blamed on me being transgender being transgender, I was really so content with my gender. It had nothing to do with my depression. Um, my gender it, treatment of gender dysphoria is quite successful. I was like super happy with my gender and my body and like loving, loving that, you know, you, you were happy. You were a dude, just miserable. You were a human. <laughs> this is the first psychiatrist you're going to see as a psychiatrist. I showed up and honestly, 
I still actually call her about once a year to check in, but I don't remember what she looks like because I never, ever looked up. I was so afraid. Um, I was, I, I didn't know what to make of it and what she'd attribute my depression to. And particularly, I had read a little bit about psychoanalytic uh, theories on transgender Ism, I suppose. So, so the doctor you saw, the psychiatrist, was analytically trained. Analytically trained, um, uh, and also able to prescribe medications. A wonderful physician, a wonderful therapist, and I still kind of carry her around. I would say, and this is something I haven't shared with you quite yet. But after my first depressive episode in high school, in my senior year. Um, in the middle of my senior year, I woke up, I sat up straight out of bed, full of energy, feeling like there was light literally coming off of my body and felt amazing and thought that maybe Jesus had saved me or something like that. Became super hyper-religious. I'll spare the details, but I really think it was a manic episode for about a year. What Nate is describing here is consistent with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, a diagnosis which, as it turns out, I share. I cycled through some mood states pretty severe throughout college, um, and my freshman year of college almost failed out because I was only sleeping a couple hours a night and in the library reading books that had nothing to do with one of my college classes, uh, which is why I started teaching myself Russian. I think it's very hard for providers, psychiatrists, to retrospectively hear stories like that. And and when I'm sitting quite calm and clearly not at all manic in her office, and um, and say, yeah, I think that maybe you had a, a manic episode. Really, in my 30s, I've only had depressive episodes. I would say the sequelae after a depressive episode takes a long time to rebuild, and even though your mood is better. Um, I think the cognitions that you're left with and the, you have to sort of re it takes, it's like, it's like uh, coming out of the ICU or something. You have to go through brain physical therapy (laughs) and, and pick up a lot of pieces. Um, and so you're someone who's gone through, you know, unbelievable stigma, trauma, brutalization for being first, not gender typical, then being a lesbian, then being trans. Then you got this other thing. How many people know about that? Mm, very few. And is that that piece, you know, the, you know, mental illness, is that even, does that feel like even more stigma than the rest of it? I think so. I think over the years being out as transgender, it's actually served as an asset to me in terms of my work and my advocacy and the, um, what I can do with, and the opportunities offered to me because of that, actually, um, it's actually served me quite well in the medical setting, being out about my mood problems would not at all serve me in any way, shape, or form, I feel. What makes you say that? The only thing implied from that 
would be that there's a ri- I'm risky. I'm a risky physician. Um, a liability and someone who may not necessarily be capable of treating patients or to be trusted. Is any of that true? Absolutely not. I work, I live for my patients. I work very hard for them. The more self-awareness I have about my mood, whether I'm in a depressive state or just a funk or I'm feeling irritable or hungry or whatever, the more I'm able to hover over myself and assess and take note and give my mood some feedback and intervene in ways that are helpful to me, um, the better human and the better physician I am. It's vital to take care of yourself. Yeah. Both your mood, like, like uh, understanding your gender, gender identity was crucial to your well-being. Right. Understanding your mood allows you to be a healer as well. My patients who come to my office are very aware of how human they are. And, um, you know, my, uh, my feeling is it's really hard to go into a superhuman's office and tell them about your failings. If you had the option of going in to see a psychiatrist who you knew had bipolar disorder because they'd spoken about it publicly or had no such knowledge, what would you choose? I'm not even sure if that would weigh in to my decision. I think a psychiatrist that listens to me, that validates my narrative and my experience, um, that is reflective, that is thoughtful, that cares about my well-being is the most important thing. I certainly, in my experiences, I would probably lean more towards if if there was a physician who I knew had bipolar disorder, might lean more towards going to them just because I would think that they might have some, based on their life experiences, maybe some better better capabilities of that. Um, But I think it would almost be like um, a null point um, to me. And when you see kids in your office... Who are coming to you, um, kind of where you started. How do you begin with them, um, knowing what you know about how a life that starts so invalidated can turn out? How do you communicate that hope? I think I want them to know that their lives matter that they're seen for who they are and valued for who they are. Um, I want to instill in them a sense of hope that it does get better. And above all, when there is no love in the world for them, that they can have love for themselves. And... I think um, from that is a very powerful river that can extend out and flow to other people. And regardless if I think sometimes your family of origin or your community rejects you, that love will be seen 
and that will draw people to you who love and appreciate you. It is, I think, a remarkable thing to to love and be loved. And um, I think a lot of my kids that I see have never known love for themselves. Um, and I think it's a gift to be a part of instilling that hope and instilling that ego strength in a kid that you are worth it. You are valuable. You mean something. Your life means something. And even though you are different, that is beautiful. Let me show you how beautiful you are. And um, hearing kids um, talk about their strengths and their hopes and their dreams. And and I think sometimes when that lives inside of you, when you put it out there and have it witnessed and by another person – it becomes real. It, it, it grows a life of its own. Um, and I think kids need that. So it's a real gift to be a part of their care. Um, and it has been amazing to see kids come in cutting, suicidal, depressed, sometimes hallucinating, sometimes with eating disorders, and they just have some moments of validation that brings true love for themselves and that stuff just kind of melts like butter. <laughs> it's beautiful. Going forward, I you know, I hear you have uh, a wife and uh, you just gave um, an unbelievable lecture here at ACAP and we're going to wrap up soon so you can go prepare for another one. Uh, the fact that my parents came to hear me speak for the first time uh, today ever um, throughout all my years of medical training and presentations and um, to be in a hometown where it's it seems sometimes like returning to a city of ghosts for me because it's hard to conjure up these memories I don't I I feel a little bit uh, what's the word thin not real Sometimes the way I was living and the way I was being, whereas now living authentically to myself, everything seems so solid around me.